Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, I am—I never thought I would be happy to hear that music. Uh, not because I dislike this show. I don't. I, this is one of uh, this is one of my favorite shows to do. Not because I dislike show tunes, although that doesn't help. I'm not the biggest fan, but I don't dislike show tunes. That music, ladies and gentlemen, is the final official nail in the coffin of the absolutely abysmal summer movie series. Summer is gone. It is dead. Take that mo- the season and all the crappy movies. Shoot them in the head. We're done. We're moving on. Hallelujah. Somehow we survived. And I don't have to deal. And that's what that music means. I don't have to deal with overstuffed, undercooked movie by committees, movies by committee that are not interesting. I don't have to deal with it anymore. Take it away. Just no, no more. I have a few months of serenity before that uh, whole mess starts up all over again. <clears throat> although, although I have secured a promise from Mark that next year we will not be using the theme for meatballs, right? No, I'll come up with something equally stupid to annoy you with. Okay, as long as we're doing something slightly different with it, I'm okay. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Robert Winfrey. This is the Radlich and Broadcasting Network Movie Review Podcast, which, you know, Mark, if we actually wanted to market this thing, we'd need to come up with a better name for it. But uh, because we don't, we'll go with the slightly more protracted opening. And here with me, as almost always, uh, the, pa- the spiritual patriarch of the Radlich and Broadcasting Network, Mark Radlich. How you doing, Mark? How about we call the show Damn You, Hollywood? I like it. <laughs> Damn you, Hollywood, with with Robert Winfrey and Mark Rattledge. Tells you nothing about about the podcast, by the way. But it's a fun name. 
It's intriguing, too. What are they talking about? Do we dislike the traffic? Do we dislike the geographical location? Uh, the sign, maybe? Because the sign's a bit of an eyesore, let's be fair. Are they talking about Hollywood, Florida? Well, I don't. Hollywood, Florida doesn't need us condemning it at this point. <laughs> uh, Ann Coulter once lauded it compared to Hollywood, California, in a comparison. Yeah, about 20 years ago, and it might have been accurate. <laughs> you ever read any of Ann Coulter's books? I find them to be fun. I mean, uh, I don't really care about lot. her opinion. Actually, I don't really care about her opinion. I don't look at her as any kind of authority on anything. But I do find her humor to be uh, uh, enjoyable. Yeah, I don't read a whole lot of humor. Yeah, You know, the way that uh, you escape into movies, that's your form of escapism – uh, I tend to escape more into books, and comedy is not really my uh, – it doesn't really appeal to me as a form of escapism in that respect. So I, I don't read a whole lot of comedies. Okay. I don't think she intends her books to be comical, by the way. Um, I just well, that to just find makes them funnier. Yeah. No, these are – I mean, she, she definitely makes a lot of quips you know, and, and remarks about people. Um, does, does a lot of Lexus Nexus searching and comments about the, about the media. Um, this last one was about, it was an argument in favor of why everyone should be excited about Donald Trump. This was before the debate. This was also before he did a U-turn on his uh, immigration policies. But um, <clears throat> there is nothing the, uh, about the current political climate in the United States of America that anyone should be excited about. I don't care what side of the aisle you fall on. Point point being that um, throughout you know th- throughout her books, uh, this one in particular, she will have a line or two uh, that that to me that that strikes me as funny. I don't care if it's accurate or not. I'm not reading her stuff for you know to learn anything. I'm reading it because I find it to be entertaining. It was just something that that my father never seems to understand. We have because he's always like, oh, you know. Why don't, why don't you read this? Why don't you read that? And I was like, okay, well, I read certain books for educational purposes. And those I'm very, you know, I have a very, very strict outline of what I'm looking for in the author. And there are just certain things I will not read because I, will, I find the author to be partisan. And I try to find nonpartisan things to learn from. However, if I'm just looking to be entertained, fuck it, who cares? <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't run to the bank with anything any of these people say. I, I read it in the spirit in which it's intended, which is how, which is part of the reason why, uh, on a bet, he made me read the Al Franken book. <laughs> you do not have a good history with bets that you lose, sir. You make bets with <laughs> no, people I... who know just how to poke at you with what you've lost. Oh no! I, uh, I this is this is why I abhor gambling. I'm terrible at it. <laughs> it was something you know, gambling and gambling and jujitsu. Eh, I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> it's just not my thing. Uh, you had to take up jujitsu. Um, I did for a while, and I much prefer punching things than to try to you know get some sweaty man off me. I. You have no idea how hard I had to resist the urge to spout them, you know, spout off. That's what she said. <laughs> you should have. I would have laughed. Now it's too late. Hey, are we going to talk it about is. a movie or no, something? 
Well, we're going to be talking about the remake of The Magnificent Seven that came out on Friday. Directed by Antoine Fuqua, starring Denzel Washington, Chris Pratt, Ethan Hawke, Vincent D'Onofrio, Lee Byung-Hoon. Although I believe that's supposed to be the other way around. And there go my dogs, because someone knocked at the door. Uh, There's a few other people on that list, but none of the others that you'll care about. Uh, And... I just, it's, it's a movie. I mean, before we get into this movie in and of itself, because it's a remake, I feel compelled to at least bring up a little bit, you know, some of the history, the original Magnificent Seven, Mark, please tell me you've seen this movie because otherwise I'm, I'm going to be talking to myself here. Um, sure. I've seen it. You're lying to me, aren't you? No, I would never lie to you. Yes, you would. By the way, that's also a lie. Yeah, okay. And just on the off chance, you're a big fan of the movies. Please, have you seen the movie that the original Magnificent Seven is based on? Uh, Akira Kurosawa's masterpiece, uh, Seven Samurai. I watched Hong Kong Kui cartoons. (sighs) (laughs) I'm surrounded by idiots. How many assholes we got on this ship? Yo! Yo! I'm surrounded. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm going to say this right now, and I'll probably reiterate it at the close of the show. If you would like to see this movie, by all means, this, this is not one of those movies like Ghostbusters where I have to get up here and say I cannot recommend this under any set of circumstances. I mean, really, I'd take waterboarding for 20 minutes over having to watch Ghostbusters again. (laughs) However, in this instance, if you wish to see this movie, go ahead, but I would also encourage you to find the original, because the original is better. And also, Kurosawa's uh, Seven Samurai, because it's a tremendous film. Uh, And since I can't actually engage with Mark about the comparative cast because the other one has, you know, Steve McQueen, and Charles Bronson, some real heavyweights, you know, and uh, we got a few decent guys here. Uh, we're just going to move on then. Mark, so real, since you haven't seen any of the films upon which this is based, you went into this kind of blind, right then? Yeah. I mean, when you initially said, Hey, let's review the Magnificent Seven last year when I pitched you this list, I went, um, okay, sure. I, in when I think about um, when, when I think about damn you Hollywood, <laughs> as we're now calling ourselves, let's get run with this. When I think about damn you Hollywood, I think about uh, big budget, uh, big budget uh, blockbusters, movies that are designed to win their weekends. And initially started as a, as just a summer series. I wanted to do the big asinine summer blockbusters but they started spreading them into March and into uh, April. Um, and when you, and then we go into next year, there's so many franchise sequels that are going, that are coming right at the early onset of the year. I can't help but have to do this all year round now with, you know, escape, you know a couple of weeks off here or there, but we, we have a loaded year next year. I think outside of maybe like September, we're almost every week doing a show for one reason or another. 
Um, so when you so to go back to this, when you said the Magnificent Seven, it, to me it fell into the same category as Ben Hur. Unnecessary remake. It'll probably win its it'll probably win its weekend, but I don't feel a need to go to to, to run out and go see it. Um, but it seemed important to you, and then this is not a dictatorship, so I said sure. Um, now I'm glad that I went to go see it. My wife and I saw it together, and we had fun doing it. But um, you know, it it was no Ghostbusters. No, it's going to make more money than Ghostbusters in all probability. <laughs> so far, it's doing well. It'll certainly be more profitable than Ghostbusters when we get into percentages. Well, yeah. But that's, that's a whole conversation about not spending a mint and trying to make a movie. Especially one no one wants. Yeah. Well, that's, a, you know, that's a weird thing. Um, I, and it does bear some degree of conversation that, you know, the, the Western is a wholly American uh, genre. And one, it, one might say that the Western uh, has no place in modern society, except for the fact that they keep doing okay. Now, I didn't think this. I didn't think this was going to be like a Ben Hur type of situation where no one would go see it. But you know, given the fact that we are drifting away from star power, drawing people to the movies, you know, I didn't think this this one had much attractiveness to it. I looked around, and you know, my theater was full. Um, lots of African American folks, which speaks to one of two things. They like movies where people shoot each other out west, or they came for Denzel Washington. Um, so, you know, star power ain't totally dead. But I think in general, I, I think the Western is still a viable genre in America if you find the right cast and the right story. And so I think people, you know, this had name recognition. People have heard of The Magnificent Seven. Um, this had uh, Chris Pine. No, Chris Pratt, sorry, Pratt. I get them confused. I, it's okay. I sometimes think they're the same. Yeah, I sometimes think they're the same person. Um, Chris Racist. Pratt, who. Uh, but all we white guys look alike to you? Yes. Fucking honkies. Um, it doesn't help that Ethan Hawke is in this movie and he is just about the most generic um, Caucasian man on the planet. Yeah, really. Um, but I think, you know, I think, you know, the, the girlies like Chris Pratt, and so he's cute, and he, he has some drawing power. Uh, he's certainly been in a lot of fun movies as of late. I mean, people loved him in Jurassic World. People love Jurassic World. I'm not saying it was a good movie. That's, we've already debated that to the nth degree, but people enjoyed him and the movie. That can't be argued. Um, and then, you know, so... I think this had a lot of winning elements that, that, that drew people to the movie. And so, you know, it's successful, but um, I don't know if every, if every Western that comes out is going to, going to find equal success. Um, I just instead it can. It's to the idea, to go back to my initial statement, the idea that the Western is dead uh, is highly, highly exaggerated. I think the biggest problem with the Western is that people have, generally forgotten how to make it accessible. I was raised on Westerns, all right? The films of John Wayne played a massive role in my development. There's about seven or eight of them that once a week, there were one or two of them that we would, and, you know, they rotated. It wasn't always the same ones of this group, but 
uh, my dad is a big fan of uh, the Western genre, so by, kind of by extension, I was exposed to a lot of Westerns, the majority of which I enjoyed. The problem is, as people tried to, they just, a lot of filmmakers just tried to recycle them without putting in the time and the energy into actually understanding what made them successful. And the most recent series of Western movies have tried to make them accessible one of two ways with varying degrees of success. Uh, One of these ideas is much better than the other, but requires a much more talented director. I mean, people in general. And the other is usually less successful, but easier. Uh, The less successful, but easier one is instead of making Westerns, we make action movies set in the old West. Yeah. And the two are not the same, mind you. But they're the notion of, well, we're going to make this accessible. Okay, we're not going to make it actually a Western. We're going to blow a bunch of stuff up. And that's, that's not the same thing. That's like, again, that's kind of like saying Star Wars is a science fiction movie. It's not. It's a fantasy movie set in outer space, which is neither here nor there in terms of quality, enjoyment, and whatnot. It's simply a categorization issue. The other the other aspect that has kind of been brought up recently, and there's two movies off the top of my head that fall into this category, is to take the Western themes, to take the you know the story elements, the characterizations and whatnot from any great Western and simply move them into a slightly more modern era. Uh, the two that come the two that come to my mind immediately are No Country for Old Men, which was set in the nineteen in actual nineteen eighty. And despite being set in 1980, is a Western in pretty much every way. The other one I saw earlier this year is Hell or High Water, which is about as Western as you can get. If I were to just describe the plot of Hell or High Water to you, it's two brothers in Texas robbing banks because they are trying to save the family ranch from a crooked bank. We haven't got the money for the mortgage on the farm. Again, the fact that this is set, you know, maybe two years ago as, you know, the recession was still, I mean, again, the year is never specified actually in Hell or High Water. It's just post or, you know, midst of the recession that, you know, crippled so much of the American economy to the point that the only response we could come up with to it was we'll have a bond issue and Maggie can deal with it. Which is a Simpsons gag for those of you who never have heard that. The town of Springfield is in trouble, so they have a bond issue. Basically, it just means, hey, we're going to give ourselves money, and in 10 years it comes due. At which point Bart and Lisa go, well, what are we going to do? And Lisa comes up with, well, when it becomes our problem, we'll issue, we'll have a bond issue, and then Maggie can deal with it. That's our That's our economic system in a nutshell, folks, and it is terrifying if you actually know what you're looking at. But it again, so despite the set, despite the chronological setting, it is a Western. And that is doing that requires a much more deft hand. You need a better script, you need a better director, you need a better cast than average. Whereas simply setting an action movie in the Old West is easier, just less successful as a general rule. Here we get. Now, hang on. At what point do you add a giant mechanical spider? Look, we're not going to talk about that. 
<laughs> but, but why? I feel like this is that's an important question. Let's really not go into the monumental, <laughs> catastrophic series of failures that is the movie Wild Wild West. Uh, you're no fun. It's look. Apparently, the giant mechanical spider was placed into that movie because the producer for that movie has some kind of bizarre fetish for giant spiders. <laughs> I love that story. The people don't know what I'm talking about. Just, just either listen to Kevin Smith talk about the death of Superman, or go go rent the documentary. Yeah. Yeah. We're all better off that that thing died. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, you know, the somewhat interesting discussion there about you know, the state of the Western brings us to something of a hybrid of those two philosophies. This is much more an action movie than the original Magnificent Seven, uh, and much so more I, so than Seven Samurai. Can I jump in here and share a thought that I had? All I right. was sharing this with my wife. And you're going to hate me. This is going to be one of those moments where you wonder why you're doing this podcast with me in particular. But now I've never, now I wasn't a Western person. My dad's not a Western person. I did not grow up with these. So I've seen very, very few. I think the earliest Westerns I can remember um, is the one with, uh, what's his face? Lex Luthor, uh, the Gene Hackman. Um, Clint uh, Eastwood. Yeah. That's about as far Tremendous back as I remember. Tremendous movie. Yeah, Love Unforgiven. Unforgiven. But I remember when I was a little kid, um, I did especially good in school, and my set, my and my, and I could pick a reward. My reward was I wanted to go to the movies with my dad and see a, a movie in particular. And in this movie, the conclusion of the, the premise of the movie is that there's a Mexican town. Don't don't jump in if you know what I'm talking about. Let me get through this. There's a Mexican town that's been overrun by a, uh, a Mexican uh, Mexican gang, and they seek out. They, they seek out heroes to free the town from tyranny. And they happen to see these heroes on a television show. As it turns out, these heroes are not really heroes, they're actors. The movie, I, and, in the, and in the end, what they do is they use something from one of their television shows to, to, uh, to, fool, the gang, uh, to fool the gang and, and get them out of the town. They, they, they dress everybody up to look like them. The movie, of course, I'm referring to is The Three Amigos. And I walked, out of, I walked out of The Magnificent Seven going, oh, so that's where they got that from. Okay, because I'm not even joking. The Three Amigos is almost the exact plot of, of The Magnificent Seven, right down to how, you know, how they concluded the movie, which I thought was hilarious, by the way. No, you're not wrong. The, uh, the Three Amigos does very much lift from the original Magnificent Seven in elements of its plot structure. It's just a comedy instead of right. a more serious film. Yes, absolutely. Why would you think I hate you for that? <laughs> that I'm bringing, I don't know. I, I, I figured you'd hate The Three Amigos for some godforsaken reason. I do not hate The Three Amigos. I actually really enjoyed the movie. Foley, 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 Foley. Hey, you, look up here, look up here, look up here. (laughs) Hey! (laughs) 
think my I, I can't do the gag because it's it's, it's a nonverbal gag. But I love the fact I love the bit where they all run out of water and you have Chevy and Except Chevy takes his character got all of his left. He like dumps it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the Three Amigos is a really uh, I enjoy the Three Amigos, and it's a perfectly valid connection to draw. Again, there's elements of this plot, and I really need to bring this up very briefly. The the film Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa, most of Kurosawa's films have informed so much of popular, uh, not just popular culture, but the archetypes by which we craft movies. Uh, the beginning of this movie or any movie in this same vein where you have the finding and the gathering of heroes or champions and not in the fantasy way where everyone is pulled in by destiny, but, you know, people actually going out and finding them. He did that first in Seven Samurai. Every other, every other time it's been done is simply because what he did was so good and made so much sense that everyone now does it. Yes, and the next time you'll see it will be in Justice League. As Batman combs the earth and the desert, comb the desert. Never mind. Um, That's our second Spaceballs reference for those of you playing the drinking game at home. <laughs> uh, as he combs the earth looking for heroes to fight um, Deathstroke, Death Star, D- 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 Darkseid, Kylo Ren, whoever the villain is. It's suppo- so- theoretically, it's Darkseid. However, I don't think it's actually going to be Darkseid. I know. He's Although not it in. would fit perfectly, it would fit perfectly with DC's pattern of, well, Marvel took the slow burn approach, so that people actually give a crap when something happens. Let's jump right in. <laughs> I think they're saving him for part two. Um, well, I one think this would first hope. One is, I think this first one is somebody else from Darkseid's realm whose name I cannot recall, but has horns on his head. Oh, who cares? I'll look it up later if I start caring. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm not looking forward to that movie at all. It's a shock. Mark, are you looking forward to that movie as anything other than a giant car crash we can mock? I don't know. Um, I mean, after everything that's happened with Batman v Superman, Suicide Squad, and everything I've read about them trying to retool things, I mean, Wonder Woman was too far gone for them to do anything about it, but, you know, but from what I understand... You know, they they pretty much held a gun to Zack Snyder's head and said, "Don't fuck this up." And he's being, you know, and you know, and Ben Affleck's producing it, so I have hope. You should not have hope. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Look, if you want to be excited about this, be excited because it's going to be so much of a mess that you will not be able to stop laughing for the totality of the film. I, uh, it's too soon to tell. Mark, you've seen trailers, right? It's not too soon to make a legitimate estimate. I'm a little, little annoyed about the idea that, that the, the Flash character, quote unquote, needs friends. And, uh, Arthur uh, Curry, I hear you talk to fish. Well, he's a tad snide. I'll give you that. So let's talk about the Magnificent Seven. All right. Uh, Again, this is a remake of the original. The plot is the same. However, since I imagine there's a whole generation of you out there who have not seen the original, first of all, go see the original, and then go see Seven Samurai, because that's actually the original, but 
both of those great movies. Uh, the primary, uh, the source of conflict here comes from the Western trope of the uh, industrialist, the robber baron, the guy who has money and wants land because there's gold under it or just because he wants land. Because as Lex Luthor reminded us in the first Superman movie, real estate's where it's at, baby. Land, 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 land. Lex, why do you always talk about land? Because of Seth Baca. <laughs> well, Mark looks that up. Uh, and this particular individual is, you know, utterly unscrupulous, kills people to intimidate the town into selling at extraordinarily low prices. Uh, I believe $20 for their land. And let's be fair, even in, we can make jokes about inflation and how much things cost back then, but 20 bucks was still not a lot of money for land. Uh, the townspeople who have had enough of this but are largely impotent in their current form head out to find uh, gunfighters. I mean, this is the same plot of A Bug's Life is the other comparison you could draw, Mark. I've seen that one, too. Don't remember. Don't necessarily remember the plot line, but yeah, I, I'm with you. It's the, it, again, this is as a basic archetype for a story. It's been around for, it, was, it actually existed prior to Kurosawa, but he perfected it, and that's the one everyone copies. So they head out. They encounter Denzel Washington, who is not a bounty hunter, but a duly appointed warrant officer, also an officer of the peace in, what is it, the Indian Tories, Kansas, Nebraska, and seven other states. Yep. Since he is one hey, to I'm remind gonna... you. <laughs> Just a quick jump in. Did people fucking see Django Unchained in Hollywood and just go, can we just have a character do that in every movie now? Just ramble on for five minutes about how he's a duly elected officer of the law, yada, yada, yada. Oh, and by the way, he's black. A black uh, sheriff? Jamie Foxx does not go on and on about him, about how he's a duly appointed warrant officer no, in that movie. Christoph Waltz does. No, does. And that's my point, is I feel like uh, you mean, Tarantino, wait, wait, wait. You mean studio executives who are completely inane and barely sapient read Cliff Notes and decided that, yes, I will mash these two things up together and ignore the genius mm-hmm. that is Tarantino's writing and money will follow. <laughs> That's what I, I, I said this that to my wife when we walked out some way. I, I, I said that to my wife when I walked out of the Magnificent Seven. I said, I'm coming away with two things from this. One, oh, that's where the Three Amigos got it from. Two, did Hollywood executives watch Django Unchained and go, can we just have a Christoph Waltz character in every movie now? And only this time he'll be black, like Samuel L. Jackson from um, uh, the, the, the Hateful Eight. Can, can we mash Christoph Waltz and Samuel L. Jackson together and do that in every movie? Mel, let's start with the Magnificent let's Seven. Let's be see fair, how Mark. You're giving them too much credit. They did not actually watch Django Unchained. They read Cliff Notes. They read a summary from an unpaid intern. Okay, but you, but I swear, as soon as he opened with that line, I'm just like, oh come on! Not that I think it would, you know, that that's not how that would go. You know, hands in the air. Um, the you know the, the uh, North Car- North Carolina police shoot him. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um. We're not doing politics here, Mark. <laughs> boo, boo, rattledge. Um. Anyway, Black Lives Matter. Uh, anywho, um, 
no lives so, matter. I'm too much of a nihilist to subscribe to any other philosophy. <laughs> I dare you to walk into a protest rally with that shirt on. Um, what? No lives matter? Yes. I, I double dare you to ever, if you ever go to a, to, to a rally, just show up in a no lives matter with this, oh, that's hashtag nihilism. Look, I would. I genuinely would, except no one would understand it. <laughs> no one would get the joke. <laughs> if Anywho, I thought there was um, even the remotest possibility that anyone on either side of that particular line or who would watch the coverage on either MSNBC <laughs> or Fox News would actually understand the joke. <laughs> Anywho, getting back to the original point. Um, yeah, I, I, I just... As soon as he does that whole bit, I just kind of rolled my eyes. And it's not that Denzel Washington did a bad job with it or any other part of this movie. Not, it's not that that bit of dialogue wouldn't be somewhat believable in a situation where a black guy walked in, you know, in the 1800s. Anyone. Walked into a, let's be fair. Walked, anyone who just shoots someone had better have a darn good reason. Yeah, walks, you know, walks into a bar, proceeds to blow the place up, um, you know, and, and walk out to an angry mob of white folk. I, I get it. It just it just seems like didn't we already do this in two previous movies? Come on, why are we doing the same thing over and over and over again? Um, but whatever, go on. Uh, anyway, they encounter Denzel Washington, who recruits among who recruits first of all Chris Pratt because he was in the town at the time and kind of backed up Denzel Washington, and then buys then Denzel buys his horse and says, if you would like it back. Uh, it will be services for payment. You can consider it payment for services rendered after the fact. And because he needs his horse, all right, we're off to the races. Uh, Chris Pratt and one of the townspeople who was out searching for hired guns separate from Denzel and the woman who was out searching for hired guns with them uh, because we need diversity, see? Uh, Denzel goes to find the Mexican of the group whose character name is Vasquez and whose actor's name I cannot remember. Let me look up. Ah, here. Manuel Garcia Rulfo. I'm probably mispronouncing some of that. I apologize. Where they encounter him, uh, Chris Pratt finds Ethan Hawke as the character of Goodnight uh, Rubidow who is a Cajun with the worst Cajun accent ever. Oh, Ethan Hawke is Gambit. Oh, 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 Cajun. Look, if if they hadn't made a point about him being a Cajun, I wouldn't have cared. He has a very uh, he has a very good Louisiana accent, all things all things considered. It's not a Cajun accent. There's a difference. And he does not have a very good Cajun accent. However, he is along with the aforementioned Byung-Hoon Lee, who is a uh, Korean. He's South Korean by nationality. Uh, They're hustling people with some of the old, uh, okay, we're going to do, you know, quick draw competitions, fastest gun wins, and uh, bring out the local guy who you all think is pretty fast. And this guy, this Chinaman here, even though he's not Chinese, We'll beat the pants off him, and I'll give you two-to-one odds. And this actually ends with him killing the guy that he's 
uh, doing this game with because he beats the other guy fair and square, and the other guy goes, no, uh, I, I, I don't believe it. I'm faster. We're going to do it again, but for real this time, and Lee dong Yoon is happy to drop all of his guns, knives, and then kill him by throwing a hairpin into his heart and still do that faster than the other guy can draw and shoot him. Uh, that's actually a direct one-to-one lift of a scene from the original where I believe they recruit Charles Bronson, who's got a bet going with the guy about whether or not he can throw a knife fa- accurately faster than he can draw a gun. He beats him. The guy says, no, you didn't. All right, we'll do it for real. And he proceeds to kill him by throwing a knife into his chest before he can actually draw the gun. Uh, they're recruited. They wind up also recruiting Vincent D'Onofrio's... Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's character gave me a lot of like random happiness in this movie, partially for his accent, which is on point. Uh, his character is James Horn. James or John? One of the two. The initials are J.H., and he is a former Indian hunter and tracker, and he decides to go along with them. Their final acquisition is a Comanche warrior who lives in the desert. Well, not actually the de- it's, it's a desert. You know, hunting deer, and just because he is, he was told by his tribal shaman that he walks a different path, and it's kind of the lonely one. But hey, I'll show up here because I get to kill white people. Which is perfectly valid, and he and Denzel share a bit of raw liver, like you do when you're bonding with someone. Uh, They all go to the town, they formulate a battle plan. Uh, Well, first of all, they kill a bunch of the Blackstone agents who are stationed there, and send off the sheriff who is in the pocket of the evil industrialist who is Bartholomew Boge. Uh, They send him back with a message. They formulate a battle plan. They do their best to train the townspeople in the art of war, or at least being able to hit what you aim at with only marginal success. Uh, Ribadau actually, Robichaux, excuse me. Uh, Not Robichaux. Ribadau's the guy from uh, Oz who talks to God. Robichaux Hmm. in this case. What? made me laugh wait a bit yeah my mind works funny I remember weird stuff uh, Robichaux actually heads out because he believes that the next time he fires a weapon in anger it will be the immediate harbinger of his personal death and then of course once the fight starts he gets the triumphant return there's a lot of cliches here folks believe in return <laughs> at the critical moment being one of them yeah that's that's got to be the first thing I talk about when when you're done here. So bring me bring me back to cliches. Uh, and I want to defend it in theory just a little bit. Uh, they engage the army brought upon them by Boge. They are largely successful in a protracted action sequence that's pretty good, all things considered. I do want to talk about that. However, it costs four of the troop their lives. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. Ethan Hawke, Lee Bong-hyun, and Chris Pratt all bite the big one. Both Denzel, no, Denzel isn't injured. Uh, Vasquez is injured, but Denzel and the Indian, whose name is Red Harvest, uh, all both emerge unscathed. The townspeople get their town back. They 
treat the dead with respect, the living right off to resume whatever they were doing beforehand. And we get a somewhat uninspired bit of voiceover narration to close us out. Well, the one thing that you're neglecting to mention, which should be mentioned, is that Denzel Washington, oh, yeah. Denzel Washington is not just doing this for the love of money. This is also a revenge tale. The bad guy in this also uh, murdered his wife and raped his daughter and killed his dog and burned his parakeet. Uh, and, hold on. Uh, no. They, his family had been homesteading on an area that uh, in Kansas that years ago Bouge had wanted, so he, drove, he murdered and drove them out and took the land for cheap. Let me just say, very per- on a brief personal note, that whole situation rubs me the wrong way because for those of you who don't know, and I don't bring this up all that often because it's very rarely relevant. In this case, I believe it is. I'm LDS. And in the early days of the church, my church, uh, we got violently evicted from three, three counties in Missouri, the latter of which actually removed us from the state. There was, believe it or not, there was an extermination order issued by the governor of Missouri for Mormons. And it wasn't repealed until 1976. Uh, prior to that point, it was actually legal to just shoot us on sight. Uh, then uh, we were actually driven out of the country, literally left the United States of America for the Western territories. And there were those who profited substantially from our constant plight because, I mean, the whole city of Nauvoo didn't actually exist before we showed up and made it. And property values. So that one just, again, it rankles me a little bit because this stuff actually happened and I have a bit of a you know, personal connection to it. Okay, so if we're telling stories, um, there's a whole book about how this pretty much happened to black people on an ongoing basis for almost a, for almost 100 years, I think. Yeah, uh, no, th- this, is, this is real. This is not a fabrication. This stuff actually happens. Um, as a, I, I'll try to get the name of the book real quick, but I read it a while back, and basically everywhere black people tried to settle, white people burned them out of, <laughs> out of there. If, if they made any decent living at it, there's um, you know huge swaths of black populations just getting wiped out after the Civil War by uh, by white people. So you ain't yeah, the only one. That was uh, that. No, we're not. And I, I don't mean to phrase it as a kind of a "woe is me" thing. Now, it happened to a lot of people for a substantial period of time. And all the you know, people who moved out west away for after the Civil War, and before it in some cases, attempting to you know, settle the land, well, hey, that land's suddenly valuable. Well, how are we going to get rid of them? Well, we could pay them a fair value for their property, or we could shoot them in the head. Well, I wonder which of those philosophies is going to play out. Uh, anyway, yeah, his family had been homesteading in Kansas to get back to the actual point, along with a lot of other people who were you know, in Kansas trying to make a go of it. They probably got to Kansas and went, well, the government screwed us again. I have been to Kansas, ladies and gentlemen. 
Uh, anyway, his mother was raped and murdered. His sisters were raped and murdered. He was hanged and left for dead, but uh, survived. And yeah, he is attracted to this whole proposition because he wants to get even. Not that I can blame him. Because why can't we just have a guy be in it for the money? Nope. <laughs> we, and while, yes, these things did happen, and I'm not, and I'm not saying they didn't, you know, Let's once again make, you know, have Hollywood remind everybody that white people suck. Yeah, that's one of my, that was one of my big gripes about this. If you look at the originals, and I'll refer to them in the plural from here on out for the sake of brevity. brevity. uh, The leaders of the bandit groups that are harassing the town are never major characters. I believe they're mentioned by name simply because it's so-and-so in their band. But they're not these you know, great big larger-than-life antagonists who must be brought down. And the guys who do it actually are in it for the money. They get paid at the end of it and are happy to do to be paid. But as you said, because we live in because damn you Hollywood. <laughs> The black man must have his vengeance on the white oppressors. Look, I'm all for making movies about that, by the way. But I feel like... This isn't one of them. Like, we're forcing an issue here that does not belong in the narrative. That's what I was getting at. Look, if you want to do a movie about... I'm still looking for this book. If you want to do a movie about, let's say, Black Wall Street. Now, Black Wall Street... um, I have to look up where it was exactly. It might have been North Carolina... There was an area of someplace in the United States that ended up um, doing very, very well. It was very, very prosperous. And just across the tracks was the white uh, area. And of course, the white the people couldn't get it going. This is kind of like an Israel-Palestine thing over and over and over again. Uh, anyway, the white people were very jealous of the black people. And so um, they had, in short, they ri- oh, there was a thing that sparked a riot. They basically, you know, like I think a black guy nudged a white woman on an elevator and someone said it was rape. So they burned the city down. Um, yeah, look, the, national- the, the stupidity and the reasons behind the said stupidity are, they are legion. They are never ending. So anyway, so yeah, so, so a false rape claim was made. Uh, white people, you know, on behalf of this white woman came into the, came into the neighborhood and, you know, started destroying the place. And then the National Guard um, they pretty much trapped the black people in the town and b- firebombed it out of existence. Uh, Why don't movie about that and try to sell it to a general audience with Denzel Washington in the lead? It's not going to be my guest. But don't, you know, don't make Star Wars. <laughs> you know? and, and, oh, and there's this undercurrent of, hey, black people got screwed. Like, come on, man. Like, know your audience. Don't don't shoehorn stuff that people didn't go to that movie to see. It was, you know, people just trying to have a nice night out, want to see a mixed bag of races shoot another mixed bag of races. I'll even settle for the fact that it wasn't a mixed bag of races. It was all white people. Fine. White men are the devil. We get it, Hollywood. You know, and, and who doesn't want to see them all shot to pieces on screen? Um, but, you know, but taking it further to the point where, like, oh, can let, let's just rub it in how horrible white people are, white industrialists, right? Let's, let's have a hanging and a family raping and a murdering. Ugh. He can't yeah. be in it for the money. I don't know what to tell you, Mark. I completely sympathize. 
It was utterly unnecessary. unnecessary. So um, the first thing I want to talk about, uh, I'll just I'll do my overall review. This was extremely predictable. I don't. The fact that I hadn't seen the movie is irrelevant. Um, just watching it and watching some of the setups and payoffs, I, was, I saw things coming a mile away. Uh, off the top of my head, I knew the Gatling gun was coming. Um, as soon as he was like, get the. I, the first of all, I, I know how it was so early on when they set up the third act, or they got the third act going, um, and it was you know, and it was the final fight scene. Uh, as much as I enjoyed, you know, there was always going to be that the high point of the good guys were going to surprise them, they were going to decimate the bad guys, and then there was going to be a thing where the bad guys would pull out their Death Star weapon. And that was going to turn the tide. And then there would be a last-ditch effort to uh, there would be a last-ditch effort to turn things around again. And then you know, and then the good guys would win in the end. It was so predictable. And so, my compliment to the movie, the thing that I enjoyed was Antoine Fuqua's use of tension throughout it. It was very, it was it was very authentic, stern tension. You know that that whole idea, that whole idea of focusing on the eyes of the actors and you know panning around and all of that. That I enjoyed, but once we got to the end, it was like, oh, here we go, <laughs> you know, stock Hollywood ending with the same with the same points, the same bullet points, and everything else. And oh, here comes you know, go get the wagon, huh? And I kind of nudged my wife, and I'm like, they've got a Gatling gun, and lo and behold, they had the a Gatling gun. Huh? Sorry, you did, the way you talked oh, about this made me think of this in professional wrestling, wrestling terms. Oh. The gets the beat down, gets some heat. The baby face comes right. back, gets the shine. You get the cutoff from the heel. Baby face comes out victorious in the end. The other thing that it reminded me of was the last samurai with Tom Cruise, which ended the exact same fucking way. You know, it was like... The samurais are really giving it to them, and then it was like, all right, bring out the Gatling, and they had like four or five of them shit. And they just roll them on out there and gun these fuckers down, and that was the end of the samurai in the movie. Um, I don't, did you ever see The Last Samurai? I did. So you know what I'm talking about. I do. Um, so I saw that coming. Uh, I, I saw, as soon as they had that whole setup there, with Denzel and the bad guy in the final showdown. I'm like, oh, this is some personal bullshit. And it was. And he's going to get saved by the broad. And he did. Because <laughs> like, I had to give her something to do. Like, fine, whatever. Um, my wife was utterly shocked, shocked, I tell you, that, that Chris Pratt didn't make it. And I'm like, oh, no, he, I knew he was a goner. <laughs> no way he wasn't getting out of this alive. Especially, like, I, I, I might have believed he was going to live had they had him do something else. But as soon as he was like, we got to get rid of that Gatling gun. Yeah, he's dead. <laughs> he's a goner. He's done. Um, I was a little shocked that Ethan Hawke and, the, and, the, uh, uh, and his uh, Chinese lover uh, didn't make it. But, you know, it was whatever. I figured, you know, most of these guys were going to get killed in this thing anyway. The whole idea was a, was a sacrifice themselves to save the town. Uh, which here's the thing, Ethan Hawke's story is a good one in the sense that he sort of redeems himself with his own blood. You know, he go, you know, he he talks a little bit about, and I wish they had done a little bit more with this, but he talks a little bit about being a Confederate, 
you know, he has that little story there with uh, with him and Denzel Washington. And, you know, and Denzel says, why are you, you know, when he says to Denzel, why are you saving me? And Denzel says, well, because the war is over. Um, but they focused a little bit more on his PTSD, which is what it was, than on the idea of him feeling the need for redemption, feeling that he was on the wrong side of history or anything else like that. I mean, instead of, instead of focusing sort of ham-fistedly on, you know, white people are bad, industrialists are bad, money is bad, why not focus more on the, on the Confederacy was bad? I'm just, I'm just, it would have been a little bit more relative to the story instead of putting in all these modern tropes in there and dressing them up cowboy style. Um, so I thought there was a missed opportunity with Ethan Hawke, but at least him dying made sense. Um, I wish they had handled his buddy's death a little bit differently. Kind of, I, I would have preferred a more, you know, Chewbacca going crazy kind of a thing, um, and him, you know, dying and dying in anger, covering for his friend or you know seek vengeance for his friend that sort of thing but whatever they both get blown away in the in the tower moving on um so yeah it was very predictable it was very hollywood this this thing was just a compilation of notes and tropes um what saves it is is the acting the acting is phenomenal it looks great but other than that this was a very paint by numbers entertaining movie there's nothing special about it. It was literally like I walked out of it going, well, that was two hours that I was entertained by and will summarily forget once I, once I finish talking about it. Um, I would say the other thing that kind of helps this movie along is actually the direction. Uh, Antoine Fuqua has a really good eye for protracted action sequences. Yeah, the action sequences uh, were good. You know, I, I could follow the, – the problem is, and my wife brought this up once or twice, she was like, every, every once in a while you'd lose track of who was on what side. Unless you knew – unless it was the main actors, you, you know, there were, there were portions of the fighting where – I mean, we're not talking Michael Bay, you know, type of thing where you completely lose track of what's happening and it's just a lot of color on screen. But because everyone is dressed in Western garb and it's a lot of just running back and forth shooting guns, you don't get a good sense periodically of who's on what side. And when someone dies, you don't know if it's a good guy or a bad guy. Now the Braveheart scenes where they're, you know, where they're, you've got the, you've got the horses, you've got the bad guys on horses rolling into town and they blow them up. Those look great. Those were, it was obvious who was what, and it looked awesome. And yes, we lost, we lost a lot of good horses that day. Once again, um, Not as many but, as they should have, but for some reason we can't show horses dying in big budget mainstream productions. Um, however, whole generation one, of both writers and producers scarred for life by uh, our taxes fate in the never-ending story. <laughs> I just tried to watch, make my daughter watch that. We got about five minutes into it, and then I had to take her to dance, which I had forgotten about, or I wouldn't have started the movie. I love that movie. There. Anywho. I love that movie. Freaks my brother out. I, I intend to make her watch I intend to make her watch it again. Moving on. Um, so, but so the horses running in and then getting blown to pieces, that all looked good. That all, that all was fine. Once the bad guys got into town and it, and it was three amigos, you know, kind of people just running across screen shooting, 
yeah, I could see when my wife was losing track of who was what. I didn't care as much. I wasn't as in, I wasn't as, in, as invested because at this point it's just you're just showing shooting, getting to the next. You're showing a sequence of shooting, getting to the next sequence. Also, I didn't get caught up in who was what. And if they wanted to show me someone important dying, they did a very good job of focusing on that. So your main characters getting blown away. That was that was well done. Everything, you know, the cannon fodder was cannon fodder, and I just didn't care. Um, there was, uh, uh, yeah, we talked about cl- the, how cliched this movie was. Well, I um, want to talk about that briefly because I have a bit of a not a defense, but a kind of a uh, a response. Well, go ahead and do it because I'm kind of, I, I guess I've already said it. You know, I, I already talked about. There was no need for it to be a personal vendetta with, with with Denzel Washington. I think I think that took away from the character. Not really added anything to it, and it was cliched. The girl saving him was cliched. Um, the best parts of the movie are the personal interactions between the actors and you know and their subsequent performances. But overall, as a narrative, um, anytime I strayed away from the strict narrative of bandits teach town to defend itself, hilarity ensues. I was like, ugh, Hollywood, you stink. Damn you, Hollywood. <laughs> Damn you, Hollywood is right. Uh, anyway, so my response to that, and I'm not disagreeing with you here. I just want to make that very clear. I don't. This felt to me like uh, Antoine Fuqua wanted to pay homage to all of the great westerns, all the, you know, the great parts of the genre. Unfortunately, when homage is not done correctly, it comes across as derivative. And I think that's what we wound up with here. From the names of the characters to the score, which is basically a greatest hits album of every other... If you watch a bunch of westerns, and again, guilty you recognize different parts of the score in this movie as coming from, I don't know if they were lifted wholesale, but at a minimum heavily influenced by these other scores from other movies. And that's not necessarily positive or negative in and of itself. I mean, uh, Morricone's score from The Hateful Eight was in many Ways you know inspired by the great by the great scores from the Dollars trilogy. It just comes across a little bit more derivative in this case instead of uh, again paying homage. And that plays through the majority of the story. It just feels instead of being you know an not even a nostalgia trip. Instead of again paying respect and paying tribute to all of these other things. It just feels a tad derivative with big explosions thrown in because damn you, Hollywood. <laughs> you know, I think we're going to run yeah, with that title. I just, it's too amusing to throw it in there at random points. Yeah. No, I definitely think we've stumbled upon a, a winner here. Um, uh, all, all right. Hang the last couple of things I want to say before we move on. Okay. I agree with you that the highlight is the interaction between the actors. This is another thing that Fuqua does really well. 
Uh, the other two movies that come to mind that are in this same vein of, well, okay, what's good about it? Well, the action is framed well and shot well, and the actors interact with each other well, would be his uh, version of King Arthur, which stars Clive Owen, where easily the best part of that entire uh, parts of that entire movie are the Knights of the Round Table just kind of standing around BSing. Uh, incidentally, also features the first on-screen pairing of Hugh Dancy and Mads Mikkelsen, who would reunite several years later as Will Graham and Hannibal Lecter for the television series Hannibal. It's random trivia for all of you out there, for those of you who care. And Tears of the Sun, which is, again, the same kind of thing where it's, you know, what's really good about this movie, well, you know, Bruce Willis does a fine job in the lead, but it's you know, kind of the interactions between the main actors and the big action pieces are well shot, well framed, and well executed. So this this movie, you know, the strengths of this film are very much what Fuqua just has his general strengths in, and some of the same weaknesses overall as well. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's physical acting in this uh, amused me in the best way possible. His accent oh, was perfect. One of my favorite parts of this movie is when they're sitting around eating and um, they're sitting around eating and Chris Pratt kind of giving him the business and he just sort of reacts like, oh, well, all right then. And I laughed, I laughed way hard out loud. It was a very simple, buried in the bitter waters, the hidden history of racial cleansing in America. That's the book. It's by Elliot Jaspin. Okay. Buried in the bitter waters, the hidden history of racial cleansing. Go out and read it. You'll hear all about how we killed lots and lots of black people in this country. Anywho, back to Vincent D'Onofrio. Um, yeah, I, I, he, he just the way he said it and everything really made me laugh. Um, it was, and just the, I was, I think some of my favorite parts of, of even the movie are just them. His introduction. This is when he comes out, you know, they, they broke a rock over my head. <laughs> but not, are we all not, agreed not, that I'm right? Are we all agreed that I'm right in the sight of God and the law to take back what's mine from these people who stole from me? Yeah, we're good, man. <laughs> <laughs> just, I mean, when they're in the town, and they you know they they know they're most likely gonna die in this mission, and that's whatever. But you know, they're just sitting around bullshitting, being men, just you know, telling tales and being cads and laughing and having a good old time. You know, it was not 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 to get on this rant, but I think it's the only time you ever see men portrayed as men is in you know is them doing something actiony. But men are more than just forces of violent nature. You know, men kid each other. You know, we, we, form, we form sort of a brotherhood of giving each other shit. I give Robert shit all the time. He's my friend. He gives me shit back. Um, and, but you don't see that, I think, portrayed as much in the movies. Men are just muscles and guns. And it was nice to see just men being men in this movie sitting around the table laughing and talking and joking and giving each other shit and it not ending in a gunfight. It was nice. And it was part of 
is probably what I enjoyed about most about the movie. Yeah, uh, and I'm with you. I don't want to get on a rant here about that. But the uh, the first two, in many ways, are also very. Uh, they're referred to as great man movies, not because they're you know, giant full of you know, giants full of explosions and one-liners and testosterone-fueled action. Uh, they're very. These are all very kind of slow-burning movies. In the sense that, you know, we get a bit of the characters. We get a bit of their interactions, their relationships with each other, and you know, how they relate to other people around them. And it's very, you know, kind of male positive in that sense, you know, masculine forward without being demeaning to anyone involved. It's just, like you said, guys being guys. And it's refreshing to see on screen. Uh, my last note uh, needs to go to uh, Byung-Hoon Lee. Uh, first of all, he has a much better grasp of the English language than I believed him to, based on what I'd seen him in previously. And his physical acting is very good as well. This is a very, he's a very believable uh, you know, force in this movie. When he, whether he's shooting or throwing knives or engaging in hand-to-hand combat, uh, he's very, very believable, and he's a very good actor. Uh, the last time we talked about him, I put this over, and I need to do so again here. I first uh, saw him as an actor in a South Korean film called I Saw the Devil, which I do need to mention. If you if you have the patience to actually read subtitles and watch a great movie that just happens to be in a foreign language, I highly recommend it. It's very, very good. So I'm I'm happy to see him get, you know, some more work, get some more exposure because he's very good and very believable in those ro- uh, in this role here. So that was my last bit. Uh do you have anything else on this one, Mark, or are we gonna move on to the money? Let's get the money. Okay, where is it? Hang on. We're a little rusty here, folks. C D ah, all your freaking S's. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going backwards. H jeez. Where are you? There it is. I got it. Here we go. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. Here comes the money. I would love to tell you what the budgets and everything are, but Box Office Mojo is just now updating their website. So here's what I can tell you. The Magnificent Seven uh, weekend gross was $34 million domestic. Um, it uh, came in number one for the weekend. Storks came in at number two, $21 million change. Sully dropped from number one to number three this week, and it brought in $13 million. Rounding out the top 10, we have Bridget Jones' Baby, Snowden, Blair Witch, which dropped from number two to number six, Don't Breathe, Suicide Squad, which was number seven last week, is currently number eight and is now in the 700 million somewhere. So good for you, DC and Warner Brothers. Uh, When the Bow Breaks, and finally Kubo and the Two Strings brought in a cool million. Um, incidentally, Peach Dragon is almost, almost, kind of, maybe, just about profitable. Woo, Peach Dragon. 
Uh, no. Um, Do not support Pete's Dragon. <laughs> as soon as Box Office Mojo says we're done um, updating the site, I will... Uh, uh, I have the... I have theoretically the budget from Wikipedia, which may or may not be accurate, but currently lists it at $108 million for the overall budget. Okay, I think... Um, overall, it was like fifty-eight million for the weekend. I mean, it's probably going to be profitable. They 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 um, they shot the thing pretty cheaply, all things considered. You know, there wasn't there wasn't a ton of CGI in this that I could see. Um, uh, you just uh, there was only a few instances, but oh boy, those explosions just really. Um, I mean, other than, you know, Denzel Washington, who I, who I would imagine commands a decent price, Chris Pratt, who's in high demand, and Ethan Hawke, I'm sure, you know, Ethan Hawke and Vincent D'Onofrio, I'm sure, get a fair, decent amount. I mean, I would imagine they spent a fair amount on just the cast for this movie and the rest of it, you know, for craft production. Um, in any case, this is not exactly, you know, this isn't World of Warcraft. This isn't Ghostbusters. They did not spend... You know, a Batman v Superman did not spend a half a million dollars, a half a billion dollars on this thing. So it will most likely be profitable. Um, not a whole lot left to say about it other than that. You know, it, it came out at a time where its only other competitor that weekend was a children's movie. And so you either kind of went to go bad see it, so children's movie. Bad. Um, I think it's, I think Stork is actually rated, was rated fresh too. I've not um, talked to anyone who enjoyed it. All right. Uh, as you can see, the number one movie from the previous weekend dropped to number three. So it's only other big competitor out there is Sully. And that's, you know, if you're interested in seeing Tom Hanks fly a plane into the water um, and, try to get an, and try to get an Oscar. Hey, I tried to, to convince you to review home. that movie because I need to desperately cleanse my palate from Ghostbusters and Suicide Squad. I don't do Oscar movies. I'm well aware of that. Believe me. <laughs> I'm on a strict, I'm on a strict candy and pizza diet here, buddy. <laughs> well, if you can't have candy and pizza physically, you may as well have it intellectually, right? Oh my God! I watched a terrible show today, and I don't mean that it's a bad show. I mean it was bad for me. I watched Carnival Eats. Ugh. Oh God! I've never had a show want to break me of my diet so badly in all my life. You should try uh, diners, drive-ins, and dives. I have. In I can live. That didn't bother me nearly as much. This one, do the the deep fried a Twinkie with a candy bar inside looked like looked like it was a Kit Kat. No, um, not a Twix. Looks like it was a Twix inside of a Twinkie. I think I've had that. Wrapped in it's bacon. Not as, it's not as good as it sounds. It really isn't. There was a. 25-pound Philly cheese. Now that, so that's, that's a really good one. Of course, I ate five pounds of fudge once. Bull. Come um, on, that's a Simpsons reference. <laughs> I'm sorry, I missed that one. I sleep in a drawer. Um, anywho. Look, so Big Daddy, it's regular Daddy. <laughs> I don't have a whole lot to, to say about this in terms of um, you know, it, it just seemed like, again, a studio going through their notes and going through their contracts and their uh, their properties and saying, okay, 
And we haven't done a Magnificent Seven in a while. People still seem to like Westerns. We'll throw a bunch of familiar faces in this that seem to have a draw, and we'll make some money. And that's, that's what this is. This was a I, – I don't want to – I don't want to put this out in a way that makes it seem like it's an Adam Sandler kind of a thing, but this was really just the cash grab. It was a successful cash grab. It was a well-made cash grab, but it was a cash grab. There's nothing about this movie other than studio heads going, we need, you know, and we need to leverage some of our um, earlier movies that we put out. I and mean, this is Sony, by the way. Okay. <laughs> Who are so desperate for financial success on even the smallest scale at this point that they'll do anything. So, you know, you figure with everything that we've talked about with Sony this past year between Spider-Man and Ghostbusters, I'm sure they'll, you know, on, they have a slate of safe movies. And that's, I think, I, I think that's where I want to kind of end this rant and move on to something else. The Magnificent Seven, if I could come up with a one word review of this movie, is that it was safe. It was a safe bet. It was made safely. It was it, it, financially, it's safe. Everything about it is we don't have to worry about this. If Ghostbusters, and, it, and it, it, this is exactly what happened. If Ghostbusters is a phenomenal failure, we'll at least start to make back, you know, some of that. You still there, Mark? Uh, normally that means I'm the one having an issue, but I don't think I am. Uh, one second. Uh, he wouldn't know. I'm not seeing any problem. Uh, that's got to be on Mark's end. Which is really unfortunate because we're about to cut to the segment that requires him to try to give me an aneurysm. Uh, hang on. I am. Oh, well, since while well, we try to figure this one out here. Uh, just briefly related to that list of movies that are successful. Uh, keep going to see Kubo and the Two Strings. I can't... Uh, great movie. Going to see that one. Uh, I would agree with Mark kind of generally that uh, this was a relatively safe movie. Uh, to the point where I was genuinely surprised when they actually started killing people. Uh, not so much Vincent D'Onofrio, but when uh, when both Ethan Hawke and Lee Bong Hyun bought it, and then Chris Pratt, I I really don't want to offend anyone, but when Chris Pratt uh, does the suicide mission with the stick of dynamite, uh, that's uh, that actually kind of surprised me a little bit. Up until again, until Chris Pratt got shot. Once he got shot, and then we got the joke about, well, all right so far. Uh, it, but still, just you know, the fact that they actually did kill off, you know, four of the three members of the team was actually shocking because everything else up until that point had been so safe. Hey, when did you lose me exactly? Uh, actually, just about the time you were wrapping up uh, when you were talking about the movie being safe. Okay, that's really all I have got to, left to say about the movie um, in terms of that. So, if uh, unless you've got anything else, I believe we are ready for the final part of this podcast. Uh, no, I don't think I have anything else. I pimped Kubo and the Two Strings again because it's a great movie. Uh, I think even you would enjoy it, Mark. You should probably go see it. And then I, I agreed with you about it being safe. <laughs> <laughs>
I, I, I'll wait for it to come on Netflix and I'll watch it with my kids. All right. Robert, are you ready to enter the world of criticism, criticism? No, God! No, God, please, no! 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 <laughs> All right. All right, bring it on. Some of these I'm going to read because fi- I find them amusing. Okay, they're not all like books. Just like, why did you get? Why do you have this as a job? But uh, Marija Lonkerovic from Cairo 360. I'm sure I just botched her name. Relatively entertaining. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. It was a uh, what's Maxwell. the phrase? A 68 degree day. Um, Tony Macklin, Tony uh, from TonyMacklin.net. Times are a changing. What? That's what, Um, for the love of all the Tolly, sir, if you were any good at your job, you wouldn't have to work at your own website. And even then, if you have even the vaguest inkling of a split personality, I demand that the other half of you fire whichever part of you wrote that. That's just, hey, water's wet. Really? (laughs) What the f- Allison, Wil- Allison Wilmore, top critic of BuzzFeed News. The Magnificent Seven is an awkward milestone in Hollywood's ongoing and urgent conversation about representation. Um, no. <laughs> I'm going with no here. Okay, let's start by talking about representation in Hollywood, because apparently we have to have this conversation. Antoine Fuqua was actually very historically accurate in this sense. The, while, the West was not nearly as whitewashed as Hollywood has portrayed it. Uh, so I, I'm going to give him points for general historical accuracy. That doesn't mean he's trying to make a statement about representation in film. It means he was trying to be accurate to the period. This is not an awkward movie, all right? Of all the criticisms that Mark and I levied at it, of all the praise we gave it, it's not awkward. It's very streamlined. This is all very clear-cut. This is not an awkward movie. And really, a movie with a $100 million budget, that selling point is there's Gatling guns and explosions done by Chris Pratt, you know, Star-Lord. This is not making a statement about anything, really. All right. Uh... A wash, Sean Burns of Spice Personality, a wash in chintzy CGI. The film has a sickly avocado sheen to it, as if it was water, as if it was color corrected in post-production to look like a can of Bud Lime. Okay, let's start with three, two things here. One, if you wish to discuss the color palette for the movie... That is a completely and utterly separate issue from CGI. Unless you're dealing with a movie that is 100% green screened. This was not. This was mostly shot on location. Uh, in parts of New Mexico and Louisiana. That's, the, that's where the majority of this filming took place. It was, <laughs> as for the bad CGI... I would love to see what this particular jackass thought about monstrosities of the digital age. 
like, you know, Penn's Day resurgence in various places, Suicide Squad, almost all of it. But uh, no, the fact that they decided to CGI explosions here instead of actually blow stuff up, that gets your goat. Really. Uh, Leonard Malton, Leonard Malton's picks. Even a phalanx of good oh, actors another can't self-employed save guy. What a ringing endorsement for his ability. Even a phalanx of good actors can't save this less than magnificent seven. Okay, that's fair. You have some very, very good actors here. And while I would give this thing a pass on the pass-fail scale, I don't think it... I, I agree with the general notion that the flaws in the film and in the script could not be overcome by the actors in this instance. Uh, Jackie K. Cooper of the Huffington Post, Washington Boo. and Pratt show two in this movie, but a lack of character death makes it entertaining only for those who love violence. I don't think that's true. That's just fundamentally untrue. No, we're only going to spend an hour and a half getting to know the characters and seeing them interact with each other, but hey, it's, it's clearly not developed. Well, what do you think <laughs> character development is? Let's just start with that basic premise. If the, if the limit of your understanding of character development is we get backstory and a very visible, very loud character arc, then I suppose the subtleties of, hey, this guy actually is a human being and we don't need to know his tragic backstory and he doesn't need to reform his womanizing ways by the end of the film, then yeah, this is going to feel like that to you. But to anyone with a functional brain and the least bit of discernment, they're going to realize that you develop characters in a myriad of different ways. And because this isn't the bold-faced, easiest way to do so, does not in any way, shape, form, or fashion mean that there isn't character development. You're lazy, and the publication you work for is crap. Speaking of which, Kurt Loder, Kurt Loder from Reason Online says, Kurt Loder, formerly of MTV, there's even a woman this time. She's a match for any of the men. It might have been included among their number had it not been necessary for her to shed tears at one point and to serve the guy's dinner at another. What are you trying to say here, buddy? What are you trying to say here, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I mean that sincerely because there's two different ways you could approach that isolated you know, paragraph. He's either being highly critical of the lack of female representation in this film, even though they do a very good job with it, or he's criticizing the representation of females in this movie because it's fundamentally a masculine movie and is not necessary. And I don't know which way he's going there, but either way, he's fundamentally wrong. I'm not sure how he's able to be wrong in two different interpretations of his work, but there you go. Uh, Christopher Orr of The Atlantic, top critic. The most arousing moment in The Magnificent Seven comes after the action has already concluded when the credits roll to the emphatic accompaniment of Elmer Bernstein's iconic 1960 score. Um, well, I imagine that you're the type of person who also reminisces about how many orange groves used to 
occupy what is now high-rise tenement housing. Al Alexander of the Patriot Ledger. If there's a pulse emanating from a single member of Fuqua's highfalutin cast, by the way, he spelled highfalutin, leaving off the uh, with a uh, with a mark at the uh, on the end. An, apost- cast, an, an apostrophe. Yeah, sorry, I lost the word well, there. Well, boy, isn't I mean, he trying to the- just be topical given what he's reviewing? <laughs> um, ah, Marianne Johansson, a flick philosopher. Humorless, wrote, cliched, and entirely unsurprising, Antoine Fuqua attempts to recapture old Hollywood magic and fails rather than create his own. Um, partially yes, partially no. I'd agree that he attempts to capture yeah. old Hollywood magic and rather than make his own. But very accurate. Fundamentally correct. I don't know where you get gross. I just don't. Maybe it's because I'm a bit of a gore hound. And I watched, you know, Paul Felder's eyebrow be split open almost down to the skull on Not Saturday. Gross, buddy. Wrote, wrote, R-O-T-E, wrote. Oh, I apologize. Oh, I apologize. In which case, you used three different words to say the same thing for no fundamental purpose. Uh, Anthony Lane of New Yorker, top critic. Traces of real history are hard to spot. Oh, wait, wait, wait. wait. La- the last thing from what she said. This is not a humorless movie. This is yeah, a, that was part that got a, me. I read it. There's a good amount of humor in this movie. I'm surprised. I don't know. I laughed several times. Yeah, so did I. So did my wife. So did most of the theater we were with. Once again, Anthony Lane, New Yorker, top critic. Traces of real history are hard to spot in Fuqua's Western, but there isn't much evidence of a real Western either. You've sensed that an entire genre, far from being revitalized, is being plundered for handy tips. Uh, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll buy most of that. With the following exception. To the best of my knowledge, the amount of historically accurate Western films is so much more limited than you might think, if I were just to pose that question to you. So I don't think that I'm not the point there being, I'm not sure how valid a criticism it is when that entire time period is just fundamentally misrepresented across the board. I mean, Braveheart's a terrible representation in terms of historical accuracy. Doesn't make it a bad movie. I'm reading this because it made me laugh, not because it was fundamentally funny, but more of what an ass this guy is. Bob Mundello of NPR, top critic. If body count, body counts in the house, body count. If body count is what you go to Westerns for, by all means, drift into this one's corral. Uh, <laughs> the fact that you work for NPR should, first of all, disqualify you from any sort of legitimate discussion regarding criticism. You can't be critically objective. You work for NPR. Oh, please let me read this. Stop. Go ahead. I got it. Josh Larson of Larson on Film. D'Onofrio Burst. <laughs> D'Onofrio. Mark, D'Onofrio... you have to actually be able to read it. D'Onofrio Burst from a bush looking like Grizzly. <laughs> looking like Grizzly Adams. If Grizzly Adams had eaten Orson Welles for breakfast. <laughs> Look, Vincent D'Onofrio is just a large man. I mean, I fail to see how that should be held against him or the movie in general. 
<laughs> I can be laughing about that until I finally fall asleep tonight. Yeah, Grizzly Adams eating Orson Welles. Cannibalism. <laughs> it's always good for a laugh. Oh, shut up. Christy Pushko of Comic Book Resources, much like Suicide Squad. The Magnificent Seven is an ensemble piece about misfits that races through Act One to skip to a to skip to a prolonged Act Three. I'm not mad at it. Um, if that's actually what the movie had done, I'd be mad at it because I was mad at Suicide Squad for doing that. I I imagine you don't have a fundamental understanding of how this film was structured. I mean, what exact, at what point do you believe the third act starts? At what point do you believe the second act is rushed over? I mean, it's a valid complaint in suicide squad because that's what they do here. They spend the majority of the second act preparing the town for this forthcoming massacre. I mean, stuff happens. Characters are developed. Strategies are devised. Things happen on screen. Why are you reaching for this criticism? And you should be mad at Suicide Squad because it did that. All right. Let's, let's keep this rolling to an end here. David Stratton, the Australian. Politically bizarre. The film is competent but routine. I'm sorry. Did you really open that sentence with politically bizarre? <laughs> You, you, sir, Australian, I don't have anything against Australians, mind you, but you, sir, looked at a large-budget action movie directed by Antoine Fuqua and decided there is politics here? <laughs> what, in what world is that supposition and that preconceived notion about this film in any way, shape, form, or fashion supported by the actual evidence at hand regarding this director, this story, and this studio. Moron. <clears throat> Christian Toto, Hollywood yeah, well, you know, uh, Man, uh, as far as politically confused movies go, boy, that Transformers, it sure is a constant reminder that white guys are great. Piss off! Christian Toto of HollywoodInToto.com. Chris Pratt is better off playing in his own galaxy than starring in an odor. O-A-T-E-R. Um, Chris Pratt's just kind of generally awesome. I mean, <laughs> really, what, what's your complaint here? Like, the man got paid, and he did a good job in the role he was cast in. Why are you complaining? What's the ba- there is no basis for this criticism. He's not wasted in the movie. Let's start there. He's not wasted in this movie. I mean, his character's drunk most of the time, but as a talent, he is not wasted. The notion that this movie is somehow fundamentally inferior to Guardians of the Galaxy simply by virtue of it being a Western or it being directed by Antoine Fuqua is pretentious, pre-biased, and inaccurate if you wish to discuss the different films on their own terms, fine. And is Guardians the better film? Sure, I'll buy that. How exactly did that arrive at the at him being wasted in this movie? He's not. He's in it for the majority of the movie. He's adequately charismatic. He clearly knows dialogue. He is believable in the action set pieces. 
I'm interested in the character. So what? He's not doing what you think he should be doing? There's a reason you type for a website that no one cares about, and he's paid millions of dollars to be on screen. <laughs> All right, two more, and then we're, then we're done here. Um, Sarah Boswell, playback colon SDL. A comic book film set in the West with no, stock characters. Stop. Stop. <laughs> You have no fundamental understanding of what it of what a comic book movie is. Just stop. You clearly did not have to suffer through Jonah Hex. Stop <laughs> embarrassing yourself, your publication, your family, your future children, and your ancestors. All right, let's let's end like I like to do with Willy Waffle. I love Waffle Movie. This guy ought to be paying us for how much we advertise him. (laughs) All right, Willie, give it to me. The word magnificent might be a bit boastful. Really? (laughs) That's that's it? It's funny. Like, not funny like he's funny. Funny like he's terrible. Wow, wait, there's an adjective in the title of this here movie, and I can potentially change that into being theoret into being, you know, what I consider satire. Wow. How many paint chips did you ingest as a child? <laughs> oh, Willy Waffles. We love you so. Uh, all right, I think I'm you disgraced the name of Waffles. I happen to like waffles. They're one of my favorite foods. But I, no, now this. there's this is, you giving them a bad name. Tony Medley of the Tulican Times. Why? Does the world really need a third iteration of this story? And one without the outstanding cast and iconic performances of his predecessor, and one with an imbecilic final battle which drags on long enough to kill every extra in <laughs> uh, No, they just killed all the extras they had on set. Not every extra in Hollywood. Second, if you first of all, this is not just the third iteration of this story. Mark and I gave you at least two others. And there are more, but, you know, you're lazy. It's okay, I get that. The final battle sequence is not imbecilic. It's actually set up and thought out. It, it makes sense from a tactical standpoint. It's executed well. This is not... Optimus Prime and Megatron spiraling from a skyscraper, indistinguishable from each other, while Shia LaBeouf makes terrified faces in the foreground. And we all remember, in some dim part of our mind, that in about three seconds of real time, which is represented by over a minute of slow motion, we're going to have to cut back to Megan Fox. You know, that Uh, reminds me. You know what would have made this movie better? Had uh, when Robichaud comes back to save to save everyone um, triumphantly, he should have been riding a dinosaur. I hate you. <laughs> Did you not hear my previous comment about Jonah Hex and everything that was wrong with it? <laughs> I never saw Jonah Hex. Um, no, 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 now you, you bust. Simply so that you can suffer as I have suffered. <laughs> sure. 
But but can't you picture him, you know, in his Confederate no, garb with his I hat, can't. I'm gun, not going but he's to. It. This is insulting to me and our listeners, <laughs> both of them. But he's running it. But he's running it. All of you're a doing is making the world worse. The act of verbalizing what is going through your head right now is actively contributing to the degradation of the human race. Just you know, there's somebody else. You know, there's somebody out there listening to this going, "Hey, that's not a bad idea. Can we get? Can that's we get a why I'm going? telling you to stop because that poor <laughs> dumbass is not somebody with a pirated iPod huddled under an overpass." It's some overpaid jackass living in Hollywood. Who's now going to pitch a movie and produce a movie that combines Westerns with, with dinosaurs. And some poor studio who, didn't, who will not historically look at the failed mashup that was Cowboys and Aliens and think, hey, this is a good idea. Let's throw $200 million at it. Well, no. Cowboys and Aliens was another failure. Cowboys and Dinosaurs will print money. Cowboys and Dinosaurs would fail as well. Cowboys and Dinosaurs test very well with children. Make it PG and you've got a winner on your hands. You absolutely do not. (laughs) No, you're, you're just saying that because you don't want it to succeed. But you know I'm right. I do not know you're right. Cowboys and Dinosaurs. Coming to a theater this uh, the, the, coming to a theater in uh, summer of 2020. Mark my words. Uh, I really, someone... really, just no, just no. Someone's gonna rise on screen, saving the day. The, they're gonna say, <laughs> "We need the cavalry, and the cavalry will arrive, will arrive riding dinosaurs, probably raptors." No. <laughs> this is happen. just almost as dumb as your idea that Paul Feig should continue to be employed. <laughs> Not that I think he should. I just, he will. Didn't you argue that he should? Pretty sure I just argued that he will. I could have sworn you said should. <laughs> yeah, I say a lot of things. Yeah, you do. No one right. knows that now better that, than me, except maybe your wife. Now that I've given you nightmares for tonight. Oh, you haven't given me nightmares. You you couldn't handle my nightmares. You're you're a pansy. You you are going to be at least up late at night thinking, oh god, what if it's true? What if someone really is listening to this and pitches cowboys and dinosaurs? Mark, I've seen the numbers. No one's listening to this. <laughs> Boo! So we talk up the show, up the show. That's down. All right. That's it. I'm done. I'm out. Are you sure? Yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm you don't want to pitch the sequel to Cowboys and Dinosaurs. We'll do that next show. Uh, which is incidentally next week, and we will be. Come on, do the plug. All right. All right, so next week, uh, I will be on Tuesday. There will be nothing because I'll be celebrating my anniversary. How many years am I married now? This is rapidly becoming Mark Radulich's divorce cast. 
<laughs> seven years uh, married to the same woman who gave me two wonderful children. Um, so we'll be celebrating our anniversary uh, at going to see Clutch at the House of Blues in Orlando. So there'll be nothing on Tuesday. However, on the 5th of October, we'll be reviewing Deepwater Horizon. And then on Thursday, Robert Winfrey and I will be back again to review Marvel's Luke Cage, which drops this Friday on Netflix. That's what's going on in our world. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not sure about this one, guys. I should be because the track record is generally impeccable, but uh, well, it's got good reviews. It's it's gotten good reviews so far uh, through Rotten Tomatoes. It's currently fresh, so we'll see what happens. I am um, uh, I am cautiously optimistic, yet also guarded. So if you're looking for more of me and Robert uh, doing things, talking about things, et cetera, et cetera, October twentieth, he will be a guest on Long Road to Ruin. We will be discussing the Hannibal Lecter movies, uh, Silence of the Lambs, and what was the second one? Hannibal. Hannibal. Um, then he'll be back again with us on the 27th, just in time for Halloween-y. Um, we'll actually be doing two things that week once again. Uh, we'll be reviewing a Monster Calls on the 25th. Yay. And on the 27th, we'll be, doing, we'll be concluding with... Um, Hannibal Rising and... It's Red uh, Dragon and Hannibal Rising. And I really, really do have to apologize to you, Mark. Because Hannibal Rising is just not good. So uh, that's our Halloween We will also be talking about the television series to uh, probably to a small degree on that show because the television series is better than Hannibal Rising. Uh, in any case, we'll be... Uh, so that'll, that's our Halloween theme show for this year. We decided to focus on Hannibal Lecter and Rob is the expert. If you haven't uh, heard his long, his uh, everyone loves a bad guy in Hannibal. It was very well received. Um, the week after that, we'll be reviewing Inferno. Um, then Dr. Strange. And then um, we'll be taking a, a, a week off. We'll be back with fantastic beasts and where to find them. Uh, then Moana. And then we will be taking another week off. And then we'll be back with, uh, in two weeks, with Rogue One. Uh, we will finish up the year uh, on the 27th of December with Assassin's Creed. We will have a guest. We will have uh, we'll, a reverse guest situation. Normally, Rob guests on Long Road to Ruin. Well, Sean Comer will be guesting on Damn You, Hollywood. <laughs> that's what we're calling ourselves. And that's like it, it for the year. Uh, when are we um, doing our year-end review? Because we have to sneak one of those in. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I have Assassin's Creed for December 27th, so I have nothing else that week, so maybe the 28th? Uh, sure. Unless you want to wait until the new year to do it. No, because we have to kick off the new year relatively quickly with uh, crap and more crap. Um, yeah, well, well, our first review isn't until the 11th of January, and that's, blood, that's Underworld Blood Wars. I saw a preview for that today and just about wanted to vomit. <laughs> Woo! Um, what are you wooing so we, about? Have you even seen the first three? I've uh, definitely seen the first one. Uh, no, but hang on. Be, be, before this goes any further. You have a choice. We can either do it either the 3rd or the 4th of January, or we can do a double shot the week of uh, Assassin's Creed. 
Uh, let's do a double shot on Assass- the week of Assassin's Creed. And if All something right. comes up, we that way if something comes up, we can move it to the one in January without issue. Uh, damn you, Hollywood. <laughs> you ruined my life. Year in review. You didn't even ruin Mark's life. Mark's love of your crappy, crappy movies. Your movies were so crappy that Mark's love of them was irreparably damaged by your offering this year. <laughs> All right, I gotta, I, I gotta get to work tomorrow. I've been off for a week, and so um, I, I need to get some sleep tonight. So take us home, Jeeves. All right, uh, last thing, this Saturday, you can find me in the MMA zone of 411mania.com. I will be providing live coverage for UFC Fight Night 95, Dodds, uh, 96, excuse me, Dodson versus Lineker, and Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, hosting the 411 Ground and Pound radio show here on the Radlich and Broadcasting Network. There will be a will lot be a to prophet. talk about this week. Saturday night, my wife and I will be at Prophets of Rage. Make America rage again, uh, ladies and gentlemen. That's not hard. That that that's like that is such a not the the antithesis of a lofty goal. Oh, we should plug this. Uh, we will be concluding Alan Moore month uh, this week. Thursday, with from Thursday, hell. Yes, I have yet to read the comic book. I intend to do that tomorrow. Oh no, there is no way. There is no way you're going to get through that. Well, I'll get through as much as I can. What I was saying was, assuming I don't have to put half of Hillsborough County on suicide watch tomorrow while I'm uh, in my office, I'm going to try to read as much of it as I can. I watched the movie today. Not at all a few times. I was a little tired. It's a bad mess. Yeah, we're really really going out on Alan Moore month with kind of a (laughs) instead of a bang. If we'd we'd thought this through beforehand – we really would have ended with V because it would have come about right after the presidential debate and been topical politically as well as the best of his work. Oh, if, if I thought about this ahead of time, I wouldn't have put them in the order in which I was interested. Eh, also. I, was most, I was most interested in The Watchmen. I was least interested in, well, from hell, the reason why it got, it got slated to this week was it was closest to October. Transitioning into Halloween, see. Uh, I maintain we should have ended on V because it would have, you know, worked topically. Yeah, we're out of Come on, you cannot, to- you so. cannot. No one who watched the presidential debate should express anything even remotely resembling optimism for the future. Oh, we'll be fine. I didn't say we wouldn't be fine. I am not predicting in either case bombs falling from the sky. But you cannot be happy about any of this. Hey, Donald Trump's going to build a wall. You know what I mean? It's going to be huge. It's going to be beautiful. And, uh, you know, and uh, he'll release his tax returns when his lawyer says it's okay. But, they're, but the tax returns, they're, they're beautiful too. They're huge. And uh, Hillary Clinton, why did you delete all those emails? I'm sorry, who were you supposed to be there? Will you please just take us out? I have to no-sell your bit just one more time. <laughs> All right. You did. All right, guys. We'll be back next week. Uh, until then, 
On behalf of Mark Radlich, I'm Robert Winfrey reminding everyone out there to please continue to be well, be safe, and behave.